think for all of us, the tribes, we all want to tell others that we're not prideful, of course, and yet we always come in contact with people who are. So how is that possible? If nobody's prideful and yet we always experience people who are, surely we might be a bit more prideful than what we think. And I think if we're honest, honest, none of us are really exempt from being prideful ourselves. We all have that in us in some ways. And the pride I'm referring to is, is not the kind of um, pride that you get when you see your family do something good or you, you're proud of something you did with your hands. I'm talking about having an overinflated high opinion of yourself above everybody else. That's the kind of pride you're talking about. It's the root of entitlement, of taking yourself too seriously. It's uh, not having a good sense of humor. It leads to anger. It leads to bitterness. It leads to murderous thoughts. And in this story, it leads to a lot of murder. There's a lot of, I mean, ju- if, judges, if anything, it's got a lot of people killing people. And this is, I think, difficult for us, pride, because many of us believe that it's a bit of a necessary evil, that if we're not prideful and don't do things that are kind of prideful, that we're not going to get ahead in life. We're not, we're not going to get that success that we need. And so we take a, a bit of a detour and we think, oh, I don't really need to do this, but maybe I have to in order to get those things I want. I mean, after all, we do see prideful people get ahead in life all the time. And the Bible agrees with that. In uh, Psalm 10, 4, it says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, who's God. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. No caring for God. He's prideful. He's wicked. And also, he's prospering. We see this all the time in our lives. The Bible's brutally honest with that. Now, as much as pride might get you, uh, as much as it might get you in the way of material things, and you might get ahead in some small ways of life, pride can never get us to a healthy, whole life. It will never make us whole human beings. Pride is not the path to a good life that we think it is, even if it can get us a few good things. Um, Thad Cockrell, who um, is a singer-songwriter, uh, he's been in various kind of bands over time, has this song called Pride, basically saying, Pride won't get us where we're going. It's made of life standing in the way. Of all the beauty this world has worth knowing, pride won't get us where we're going. And then the commonly quoted proverb by people who don't even, you know, who've never read the Bible before have heard this, pride goes before destruction, or the King James Version, pride goeth before a fall. First stop, pride. Next stop, destruction. That's how it works in all of our lives. See, pride lies to all of us. It tells us we must present ourselves better than what we are in order to get the things that we think we need and require. As we overinflate our sense of self, we might get that thing, maybe, but at the expense of a lack of wholeness in ourselves. A part of our soul kind of dies as, as we live that kind of life. A life based on pride is one that's based on nothing really but hot air. Pride blinds us to who we really are because we're so busy puffing ourselves up, we're not really presenting and and living out of our authentic selves. So it's not only bad for us, it's also bad for other people because pride is a toxic thing that can easily infect other people and, and, and horribly affects them. And so though we're prone to believe that pride will get us where we want to be, what Jesus does is he invites us to a life of wholeness, of something better than that kind of immediate gratification that pride can sometimes give us. And the way that Jesus enables us to walk is one of whole humility, of a whole humility. Only through Jesus can we really live in the way to enjoy all the beauty that this world has worth knowing. So um, let's kind of briefly uh, talk about this crazy chapter 8 that we just read. Like, what's going on? There's all sorts of crazy names and places. So we're going to break it down and retell it a bit. Uh, we, what we really see in the story is a pride gets in the way of the good life for us. Um, so... Gideon, he's, remember, he's on the heels of defeating the Midianite army. 
That's what the last week was about. Um, and so he's asking people to help him, even though God has basically already promised that he doesn't need their help. He's still doing it because Gideon is, you know, he's not confident in God. Um, and, but the people that he's asking to help them, they say no. Like, no, no, we don't see, you know, do you have those kings in your possession? We're not going to give you the things we need. Um, and so he has Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing these two kings, the Zed brothers, Zeba and Zalmanah. Those are crazy names. Um, and so those guys, by the way, have 15,000 people. So you have these 300 people who are probably not like Spartan-trained people. They're just like farmers who happen to have a sword are following 15,000 people. It's a war epic. Now remember that God promised to work through Gideon. That's like his promise from the beginning is, I will deliver Midian into your hands, Gideon. Uh, numbers don't really matter when the Lord's on your side. So anyway, after Gideon's victory, he goes back to the people who didn't give him any help, and he teaches them a lesson, a.k.a. tortures them with desert briars, destruction. He tears down their tower and kills them, murder. He then talks to these enemy kings, Zeba and Zalmanah, and Gideon kills them. Though not before like what is a great kind of Clint Eastwood kind of one-liner, like Gideon's there, he's like, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? And they're like, men just like you, each with the bearing of a prince. And he's like, ah, son, kill him. And the son's too scared because he's like, I don't want to kill people. I'm five, dad. And dad's like, ah, don't worry, I'll kill him. And he kills him. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, the, I'm Gideon. I had to do that, sorry. <laughs> then <laughs> I'll stop there. Then uh, returning from victory, the people want Gideon to be king. And he's like, no, 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 Like the Lord should be your king. But... If you want to give me some gold, if you want to, you know, set me up, you know, pretty good for the rest of my life, my son's life, my grandson's life, I'm not going to say no. So basically getting insane, he doesn't want a king, or doesn't, the Lord is your king, basically getting functionally becomes their king. And it doesn't really end really well. The story ends with a downward spiral towards idol worship, and Gideon's family is forgotten just as God's family is forgotten. Now, the interesting thing here in chapter 8, in chapter 6 and 7, like Gideon is talking to God often. And often it's because Gideon's like, I don't really believe you, God. Is this true? In chapter 8, he doesn't talk to God at all. In fact, the only time he talks about the Lord is kind of in a way to um, bring up retribution and, uh, on his own behalf. So there's a, kind of a stark difference between these chapters. Now, this story teaches us how pride stands in the way of a good life. It's really basically a cautionary tale for all of us. So internally... We're going to look at internally, pride leads to bitterness and anger inside of us, but that bitterness and anger we can't keep inside of us. It always leaks out and always infects other people. So in the relationships that we have with other people, our pride actually leads them astray. And these are people that we care about, people that we love. And then in our relationship with the Lord, if we're prideful, there is no room for God because we're inflated our being with us and nothing else. So let's look at this first thing, uh, how pride leads to... um, bitterness and anger, and really how they're interlocked. Bitterness and anger can lead to pride, and pride can lead to bitterness and anger. Um, Internally, when we have bitterness and anger that we don't deal with in healthy ways, we're off God's path. It will just take us off of the path that God wants us to be on. We're off the track of the good life. And here's what we see with, with pride happening in this story. Our internal bitterness and anger never stays internal. Again, it always leaks out. We may not realize it, but it will. And we think, you know, in our pride, that we can handle our pride. So we're prideful, and then also we're prideful about our pride. Like, don't worry, I got it. I can figure it out on my own. That never really ends well. It never ends well. I mean, look at Gideon. Gideon, in, this, in chapter 8, now he's the first judge, the first leader of Israel to kill fellow Israelites. 
is killing other people from other tribes, but they're basically his like uncles, nieces, nephews. They're you know they're part supposed to be part of a family, and now we see people within the family murdering people within their family. Well, let's um, start at the beginning here in verse three, uh, in chapter eight, uh, we see people who are um, angry with Gideon that he didn't ask them to join in on the fight. Uh, so after Gideon has done all the hard work, after Gideon has the victory, now these people are coming out of the woodwork, who are actually much better off than Gideon was to begin with, saying, well, why didn't you ask us to kill people with you? Like, we're really good at killing people. Why, like, we really, basically, we really want the spoils of, of war. Why didn't, you help us? why didn't you ask us to join in? And then, in the next verse, verses 4 through 9, you have people who aren't helping Gideon because he's not victorious enough. Because they're like, oh, you don't have those kings yet, so we're not going to help you. So on one side, he has people who say, why didn't you help us? On the other side, he's saying, like, no, we're not going to help you. Like, basically, how frustrating it must be for Gideon as a leader who's trying to make this thing happen. Of course, in the background of all of this is God's promise to Gideon saying, you don't need those people. I've already told you, you're going to win, and you need less people. But Gideon doesn't seem to really care about that. For a leader, for Gideon, this is a temptation towards pride. He's like, you, get, you guys weren't with me and uh, then, and now you want to steal the stuff I won, and you're not going to be with me now when I have more work to do. Of course he's going to be prideful about that if he's not bringing himself to the Lord. And that leads to bitterness. So how did Gideon respond in his bitterness? Well, he threatened, and his pride leaves him bitter, and it moves his heart to murder. He's like, I'm going to come back and teach you guys a lesson. I'm going to tear down that, uh, that tower. I'm going to do all those things. And by the way, just as like a... This isn't even related to this sermon at all. It's completely off track. But people who join something because of faith in something that doesn't exist yet, those people are gold. People who are like, oh, I'll join once, you know, once I can get something out of it. Um, kind of a self-centered kind of serving thing. I mean, those people will always, will always be with us. But the people who are like, no, I want to serve and I might not get anything out of it, but I want to serve and be a part of it, even if I don't get anything out of it, those people are gold. Anyway, that's a whole separate kind of thing we're not going to talk anymore about. Let's talk about Gideon's threats again. Following up with Gideon's threats, we see in verse 16 and 17, they're not just empty threats. He follows through. He tortures people. He murders all the men in the town. He tears down a tower. If you were, grew up in the church and taught that Gideon was some kind of like faith-filled man, you've, totally, I'm sorry, but they taught you wrong. He's a complete war criminal. Like he's just using his strength to destroy other people who are innocent. His internal bitterness and anger have taken him over, even after getting a victory. And maybe because now he can see that he's victorious in battle, now he thinks he's entitled to do whatever he wants. And people should just kind of fall in line with what he says regardless. And if not, well, I'll kill you. It's basically the stereotypical successful person doing what they want. And we all know this. In fact, I, uh, I was looking for um, stories of this. And in 2012, I found a study. Not in 2012. I found last week, a study in 2012, uh, a study in California of people, who, the kind of cars that you drove and the correlation of uh, how likely you were to keep uh, laws, like um, vehicle laws. So basically, they ranked your vehicle from one to five. The worst vehicle was a five. The be- best vehicle was a one. And they ranked your compliance with laws on a one to five as well. And basically what they found, people with the worst vehicles 100% obeyed all the laws, all the traffic laws. They kept to the speed limit. They didn't run pedestrian crossings. You know, they, they were basically keeping all the rules. The people who were the worst offenders were the people with the nicest cars, the people who basically had some kind of success and were able to show it off in some way. And to maybe further keep with uh, stereotypes we might have of culture, 
the two worst offenders were people who owned BMWs and people who owned Toyota Priuses. So it's like kind of like people who are outwardly ostentatious with maybe their success or their wealth were the people who were more likely to run pedestrian crossings, which is, that's a pretty big deal. Like you kill somebody for running a pedestrian crossing or like stop signs or not pay attention to traffic lights. So what we see generally is successful people are often have that entitlement that I can do whatever I want. And in my experience in talking with successful people, I found often there's a correlation of the outward success it generally is negatively correlated with internal wholeness. Like the more successful kind of on all fronts of the car, the house, the career and everything, not all the time, but it's not surprising when internally their lives, their emotional life, their relational lives are kind of totally out of whack. That's just kind of how it is. And I think that's a problem of, that we get when we're successful in one way. We think that success automatically translates to everything else and we're completely fine, which is not the case. And before you think uh, this story isn't about you because you haven't tortured someone with desert briars recently, and hopefully you haven't. If you have, please don't do that this week. Stay indoors. Fight coronavirus. Do not torture somebody. Um, how does this apply to, like, Tuesday, Janet in HR? You're like, oh, her again. How does this apply? Let's, let's look at Matthew 5, Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. He says this, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which is basically another way of saying, like, you fool, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus just doesn't say words to say words. Like, he's, these are his, his words to us. So all of us, Every single one of us, we're all guilty of anger in our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. We're all guilty of this kind of murder in our hearts, even though we may not fulfill it, hopefully, in the real world. But we hold on to that angerness, that, that anger, and we hold on to it, and it becomes bitter, it becomes hardened, it becomes a part of who we are. But what it actually what it also does is it destroys us, and it keeps us away from the good life. There's that famous line that you might have heard before. Many pastors, myself now, will quote, uh, bitterness is like drinking poison waiting for the other person to die. It affects us. It doesn't affect the other person. In fact, they probably aren't thinking about you at all. So instead of holding on to it, we're called to bring it to the Lord. We're called to talk to him about it. Like, say, I'm really angry, even, with, even with, when it's with him, especially when it's with him. I'm really angry with you, God. That's what prayer life is like. And we find that same emotion in the Psalms after, after, as you read the Psalms. And, and reading the Psalms kind of teaches us how to deal with that anger. The first thing we do is we talk to God about it. And the reason you're talking to someone will be for, in this, because you can't do this alone, the reason you're talking to someone will be for them to help you go through it. Because oftentimes when we talk to other people, it's basically an excuse to kind of be gossipy or kind of talk about things that... We maybe shouldn't talk about, but it's like Christianized, and so we can say, oh, this person said this. But really what you need, because you can't do this alone, what you need is to talk to somebody else in a way that it will help you process your anger. Because regardless of whatever has happened, the problem that you have responsibility over is yours, not the other person. So that stops us from, from being kind of gossipy and allows other people to speak into our lives, even when it's not, diff- when it's not fun, saying maybe you shouldn't you know, act that way. Maybe, what do you think about those thoughts? Is that a loving way? How are you bringing that to God? Those kind of things. That's the kind of thing that we need from other people. Because oftentimes, we're not going to be that kind of person for ourselves. 
Now, I'm leaning maybe a little bit into this because we live in a society that is completely at odds with gospel community in this way. It's completely at odds. Basically, we're, we've been told to be polite and nice, and that means to not talk about things that might be really difficult or that might be offensive or that maybe there's a little bit of a risk to a relationship in. Now, we, we should all be nice and polite to people, but we shouldn't use that as a reason to stop us from saying hard things to people, hard things in hopefully loving and gentle ways. Sometimes you need to point out that it's not that you're stopping, or it's not that you want to rock the boat, it's that the boat is already rocking and careening out of control and it's going to the wrong direction. And if you aren't going to say that to somebody, who is going to be that person in their life? Sometimes it's going to be you. And we think that just leaving it is a way of loving others, or we try and convince ourselves that way. But really, it's just a way of protecting ourselves because we don't want to go into the difficult, those kind of difficult waters. Gospel community calls us to say difficult things in loving and gentle ways. Otherwise, we will, as a community, be stuck in bitterness and in anger. So that's bitterness and anger um, inwardly. Let's talk about what it means when it leaks out and uh, attacks other people. How, how pride leads others astray. So because we're relational beings, pride inevitably leads other people astray because we're always interacting with people in some ways. And often, pride will negatively affect the people that we love, the people that we care for, the people that we want to see kind of grow up and mature. So let's look at the um, hilarious and sad ending to Gideon's story, starting in verses 22. Uh, if you can turn there. Um, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. 8.22. So the Israelites are saying to Gideon, rule over us. And Gideon's like, no, 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 no. But give me your earrings. Give me your women. Give me your like ruling power, basically, is what he's saying. We'll kind of break this down in a second. He's saying, the Lord will be your king. But I'm going to make... I'm going to... Uh, melt down your gold for earrings. I'm going to make an ephod. We'll talk about what that is in a second. And I'm also going to have a lot of wives and even at least one concubine. We'll talk about all that stuff in a second. Let's get specific here. Verse 24, what does it mean? Give me your gold earrings. Um, So he says, I do have one request that each one of you give an earring from your share of the plunder. Which is, I mean, maybe that's all right. He's the leader. Um, he, He did, you know, all the heavy lifting maybe to begin with. Maybe it's the right kind of tax for him to get. Well, who taxes people? A king taxes people. And you notice in, uh, in brackets, it was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. So it's not the custom of people who follow Yahweh. It's the custom of people who worship other gods to do, to do this thing. Gideon doesn't really care about following Yahweh at this point, following the Lord. He's following after the customs of other people. It's never, a good, by the way, it's in the Bible, if there's that little kind of side note, that's basically never a good thing. It was the custom of these other people that he followed. That's basically the author saying, he's just acting like all the other people we should be different from. So he ends up, if you don't know the, the weight of shekels, by the way, he ends up with 20 kilos of gold, basically. That's a lot of gold. A lot of gold for one guy. But that wasn't all. In verse 27, he makes an ephod. What is an ephod? An ephod is a robe that would be used for uh, spiritual ceremonies. Uh, and ephods in themselves aren't necessarily bad, but... Uh, it depends on what are you using the ephod for. Like, what kind of God are you worshiping? And what we're told later on is it becomes a snare to Gideon and his family. Not worshiping Yahweh, that means. Worshiping some other God. So Gideon himself is the one who's setting up idol worship. Jeroboam, the God crusher, is the one who's setting up 
worship to these other gods. That's not a good thing. It becomes a weakness for Gideon. And here's, here's the, the sad part. All Israel worships there. All Israel. What was a, a move from Gideon, because he's a leader and he's involved in other people's lives, affected all of Israel. You have to imagine, surely there were people in Israel who were maybe on the path of the Lord and then Gideon sets this thing up and they're like, oh, wait, maybe I should go over here. And they're just doing what they think they should do because they're following the leader. And then verse 30, um, he had many wives and at least one concubine. Having, never, having lots of wives is never a good thing in the Bible. A lot of leaders who did good things had a lot of wives. It doesn't mean that having a lot of wives is a good thing. Uh, it never works out well. And it's not how actually Yahweh tell, has told his people to live and to work. But who has lots of wives? Who sets up their own kind of worship systems? And who extracts gold from people? Kings do. That's exactly who does. And that's exactly what Gideon's acting like. So what do we see as a legacy? In verse 33, uh, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They're worshiping other gods. They're just obsessed with other gods. As soon as Gideon dies, idol worship, they forget God and they forget Gideon's family. So in the end, Gideon did rule over them and one of his sons did rule over them. And that's what Mike Lehan's going to preach next week about how well that went. Like, side note, not very good. Abimelech, not a great leader. Wasn't pretty. Um, and and so that all the things that Gideon said he wasn't going to do, he does. He's like the ultimate kind of hypocritical virtue signaler of saying, oh, I'm not, I'm not like your king, only, only the Lord is. But yet he's doing all the things behind people's back. If you haven't heard that phrase, virtue signaler, it's, it, it can be like a humble brag of kind of trying to talk about how amazing you are without it being obvious that you're talking about how amazing you are. Like social media is made for this kind of thing. We see it all the time. Um, but it, it's, it's also the reason why people like tweet out hashtags for activism but not actually really get involved in any kind of activist kind of stuff because we want to be seen. Maybe we actually really do care, but not enough to actually do anything about it. Gideon says, I will not be your king. Only Lord will be your king. And he goes on in Acts 1 anyway. And this happens in the church all the time. This exact thing that we're reading about, not torture and death um, in our context anyway, but it's how people pray when people are listening to them versus how they pray when they're on their own, if they do. It's what we do in this room versus how we live like an hour from now or tomorrow at this time. We act like Gideon all the time. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm, yeah, I'm, and then we act like not a Christian at all in all the other kind of ways of our lives. The words we use when we talk to each other versus the word we use when we talk to people who aren't part of the church. We kind of adopt a different kind of vocabulary. How we don't seem to have any problems in here because for some reason that seems to be more spiritual even though it's really not. Um, but then out there, of course, we know we have loads of problems. We've already talked about the damage that pride does to ourselves, but when a group of people are swimming in this kind of hypocritical pride, people with real problems who are drowning will feel left out. And people who doubt will learn, oh, this isn't a place where you can talk about doubts. People who have issues with God will be like, oh, this isn't a place where you can have issues with God or the Bible. I guess this is just the, the way things work here. Either this is a place for me, or you have to learn how, how to push those doubts down like everyone else. See, our pride damages us. Our pride leads, other, leads others astray. And we're connected to more people and lead more people than we probably think. Just like in Gideon's time, our pride will lead others to prostitute themselves. That's what we're doing when we lead other people that way. 
See, pride is not benign. It's a horrible disease that, if not dealt with, becomes contagious. So internally and externally, we talked about how pride affects us as humans, like on the horizontal level. But what about the vertical level? What about between us and God? We don't see a whole lot of God in this chapter here. Well, how does this affect a relationship with God? Well, being puffed up with pride leaves no room for the Lord. No room for God at all. Um, I mentioned Psalm 10 from the beginning, Psalm 10.4. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. Oh, you have it up in here. Uh, in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. So how can there be room for God or other people, for that matter, if we're so busy making ourselves be so much? Of course there's no room. We're pushing him out in what we do. And in order to keep this kind of empty charade going, you have to keep the hot air flowing. It has to keep coming in. In chapters 6 through 7, Gideon has loads of conversations with the Lord. And they're mixed. Sometimes Gideon's on board. Sometimes you're wondering, does he even care at all? And it's not perfect, right? But at least Gideon did eventually obey. He did follow through. It wasn't like Gideon was completely disobedient in all ways. Gideon did follow through. But here, though, God is only invoked as a play of power. Like, when I come back, just wait. Like, I'm going to use the Lord's wrath upon you as some kind of, like, you know, fire and brimstone preacher to people who are walking across the street. There is a dreadful silence for God in this chapter. And we see the people slip into dreadful lives because they're living in a sabotage spirituality. It's like if you pump up a beach ball, the outside looks big. And if I was to get one, maybe in non-COVID times, it would have been a thought, oh, let's blow a ball up and throw it around the room. And now service transmission. No, no, we can't do that. Um, but just imagine if we had a big beach ball here, you could easily just chuck it around the room because it's, it's weightless. It's empty. It doesn't have a gravity to it. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect things around it. You can, it moves to the whims of a finger or a hand of somebody else. See, there's no substance to our souls when we're living in pride. We become empty, filled up with our own thoughts. And our lack of substance, though, we're tempted to make something of ourselves, to show ourselves off as something. And we want to be self-sufficient. And when we're not, we wonder what's gone wrong. So we always turn it back on ourselves. I can deal with it. And if not, then I'm not good enough. This keeps us from being who we were created to be. We can't be our true selves if the disease of pride has taken us over. That's not our true selves. This keeps us from other people because we're not presenting our true selves to them and also we lead them astray. And this keeps us from the Lord. If we hang on to the lie that we can do it ourselves, there's no place or no need really for a relationship with God. It just becomes an option. Something nice to do on a Sunday morning. You know, The weather's great. There's loads of things we could be doing today instead. That kind of relationship, if, if we're prideful people, the only real kind of relationship you can have with God is like a God in a box. He's in a cupboard, you take him out from time to time, maybe to make yourself feel better, to assuage a bit of guilt that you might have, but you put him back. It doesn't really affect your life. See, pride keeps us from the good life. But what should we generally think about Gideon over these past three chapters? What should we think about him? Like, how do we process this man? Obviously, he's flawed. Um, war criminal, yeah, God chose him. Um, what, 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 what should we think about him? As good as he is, he's equally and probably more so not good. He's simultaneously the hero and the anti-hero of these stories. These stories aren't telling us to be like Gideon, just presenting a mirror into what our lives are like. And it's the same in us. We are, are a mix of good and bad and kind of everything in between. That's what Gideon is really all about. That's what these stories and judges are really all about. There is a way of pride, and there is a way of Jesus. 
The way of Jesus is a road paved by his grace. And it's a road completely different than the way of pride that we've been talking about. Uh, two Christian authors uh, and theologians write this, um, Dan Allender and Trevor Longman. They say, uh, grace requires us to let go of our God of self-sufficiency. Our pride compels us to rectify a wrong, but grace exposes our inability to make it better. We are the helpless recipients of kindness. Our pride compels us to rectify a wrong, like it's all on us, but grace exposes our inability to make it better. We are the helpless recipients of kindness. And Paul, in Philippians 2, wrote this, and you might have heard these words before, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So this is Jesus' mindset, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him, as Jesus, not us, to the highest place, and gave him the name that's above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, the way of Jesus, for us, for those who follow Jesus, is the way of humility. That is completely opposite of how Gideon has gone about his life here in chapter 8. Sometimes, as it was for Jesus, that requires suffering. But Jesus' way leads us to peace, leads us to make room for others, leads us to let God make his room in our hearts. As Paul wrote those words that we read in Philippians the second there, uh, Jesus died on a cross. This wasn't like the good life that we might see in magazines, right? But through his death, now he's exalted in his resurrection. Jesus' death frees us from the pride, frees us from the, uh, to be able to live in this kind of new way. Jesus' death is what allows us to live in the way of him that he's given us. How can we not be prideful in how we follow him? Like, how, how can we actually do that? Because it's so easy to be that way. How, how do we not rely on our own self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency to be like Jesus? Because everything in this world teaches us to do everything ourselves. The only way, and this is what Jesus' death and resurrection did for us, the only way is through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enables us to live this way. It's not like it's a good idea. It's not like Jesus is just a model. Jesus enables us to be able to live this way through his Spirit. See, we all want the good life, and God wants us to experience the good life because he loves us. The way to experience the good life is through his Spirit, to be in conversation with him, through reading his words to us, through praying to him, through being with the community, the family that he's creating for himself. The only way we can have God make his room in our lives is through the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our hearts. That means there's no room for a prideful person because we want God to fill that space. We don't want to overinflate ourselves. Now, if you don't have this, know that you can't. Anyone can get in on this. This is something that anyone can experience. Anyone can get in on. You can talk to God and just say, Jesus, I follow you. Won't you change me? It's as simple as that. And he will give you his Holy Spirit and you'll be able to walk in his way, which is different than all the other ways this world has for us. If you want to uh, learn more about that, about what, and learn more about what a, a community of like that living together is like, um, you can go to this, yep, go to that site, and it might be on the screen as well, redeemermcr.com slash connect. Um, and you can see what it's like for our community to live this way. You know, different community, different churches live different ways. You can learn a little, bit, a little bit of what it's like for our community to live this way. Now, for all of us who do follow Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. Like, we have him. 
He's in us. Why don't we depend on him more than we do? Because I know this is true for all of us in this room, myself included. We don't depend on the Spirit as much as we ought to. Like, why not? What, what, what's holding us back? Do we really think we know better? Do we really think we, are, we have more power? Let's have it. Let's depend more on him. Let's listen to him more through prayer, which is the way we get to know who he is. Let's read the Bible. Reading the Bible is God speaking to us. It's how we get to know who he is. And let's do this together, not separated, siloed off. See, humility is a gift that literally cannot be practiced alone. Uh, a person who has no relationships can't be humble because how are they going to be humble or prideful? But a person who's in relationship has to be humble in order to be able to live the way of Jesus. Those words from Philippians. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May our hearts be overwhelmed by the love of God, by the, by the wonder of his glory at work in our lives. May that just kind of saturate all the things we do, even things we think aren't spiritual, which is nothing. It's all things are. May God take up such a place in our hearts that there is no room for pride because we're so enamored with the love of God that he's changing us and making us into something even better than what we were before. And may we reflect this love out to other people, those who are within Redeemer and those who aren't yet, people that God puts in our path and people who we might have to go out of our way even to get to know. There's uh, some reflection questions here. These are best done with other people, speaking of the importance of community. Um, and if you don't have someone else to at, like, ask these difficult questions with, um, we would love to you know, help with those kind of relationships. Just um, talk to us. So number one is, how does giving in to pride sabotage your life and others' lives? The second thing is, what could a life of walking humbly with God look like for you? And the third is, what might be a small step towards that change?